Let's uh, begin our study in Ephesians with a quote from A.W. Tozer. This quote really sets the direction we're going to be going this morning. Just listen to this. It is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless and until the hearers of the word find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men and women to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into Him, that they may delight in His presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God Himself in the core and center of their hearts. Ultimately, that's really what we're going to be talking about this morning. How we move from hearing the word to really knowing God. You see, that's what we were created for. That's what our hearts really deeply long for, whether we know it or not. Our desire is not just facts about God, but through hearing the truth about Him, to have a passion for Him ignited in our hearts. Our desire is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Our desire is to, to experience Him, to, to taste Him, to feel Him. But how do we do that? How do we move from what we hear to knowing God? You know, week after week, we come together and have the Scriptures explained. And that's good. That's helpful. That's valuable. But it isn't enough. How do you take that next critical step to knowing God? Well, fortunately, I think Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. Turn there if you haven't yet. Ephesians is in your New Testament. It's a little bit past halfway in the New Testament. You've got the Gospels. You've got Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and then that little book of Ephesians. We're going to start at verse 15. But what's going on here is that Paul is telling the Christians in Ephesus that he's praying for them. First he tells them why he started praying for them, and then he tells them exactly what he's praying for them. So let me start with verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul says ever since he heard that these guys had become Christians, he's not stopped praying for them. But what was it? that tipped him off that they'd really become Christians? What removed any doubt in his mind that they were really believers? About 20 years ago, uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a little booklet. It's called The Marks of a Christian. Uh, If you can ever get your hands on a copy of that, do. It's still, I think, one of the most important works ever written. It's a little booklet. Back when Schaeffer wrote this, there was a, a lot of controversy in in Christian circles, about what the marks of a Christian really were. There was a growing movement that was arguing that the mark of a Christian is the ability to speak in tongues, to talk in languages that that you've never learned. There were little groups that argued that the marks of a Christian were the ability to handle poisonous snakes and to drink poison and, and not have it harm you. Others said the mark of a Christian is wealth and health, success at everything you do because God is with you and His power is unleashed and giving you everything your heart desires. The more uh, conservative churches said, no, 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 that's not the marks of a Christian at all. 
The marks of a Christian are that you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't go to movies, you don't dance, you don't play cards. Schaefer's little booklet really set the Christian world straight. And the best thing about it is that Schaefer agrees with Paul completely. See, right here, Paul has described the marks of a Christian. Listen. Since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. These are the marks of a Christian. First, there is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That simply means you trust him. When When he says something, you trust it to be true. When he says he loves you, you believe him. When he says that his death covered all of your sins, past, present, future, you believe him. When he says he will meet all of your needs, if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you believe him and you act on it. When he says that he's going to come again and take us to be with himself, you believe him and you organize your life on that expectation. See, this is the fundamental starting place, that you trust Him, you believe Him. What He says, you take it and believe it. That's not the only mark of a Christian. There has to be a reality check on this faith, on this belief. When I was a freshman in high school, I made the varsity wrestling team. And I can still remember the first meet. There I was, all 112 pounds of me standing in line for weigh-ins, and right next to me was the strongest, meanest-looking 112-pounder from the other team that anyone has ever seen. This guy was an upperclassman, and, and he was talking away about all of the tournaments and matches that he had won. And I, just to listen to him, I was convinced that he was the best wrestler in the league. Match started, and I sat there through the 98-pound, and I kept looking at this guy across the way, and I was getting scared. And then the 103-pounders wrestle, and I got scareder. Then came the uh, time for uh, for us to get out there, the 112. And I went out onto the mat trembling. I was sure that I was going to be totally humiliated. But within the first minute, uh, I pinned him. He basically just flopped on his back, and I laid on him. <laughs> you know, he was all talk, but when it came to getting out there on the mat, when it really could be told, he was no good. He could talk the talk, but he couldn't walk the walk. Unfortunately, I'm afraid that's what a lot who call themselves Christians do. There's no proof in the pudding. Uh, The writer of uh, James, that little letter toward the back of your New Testaments, he's very clear. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, there will be proof in your life. If, If you trust Jesus, it will be revealed. And faith is shown, faith is revealed by the concern it awakens in us for those around us. The concern it awakens in us for the hurting, the the heartbroken, the needy. And the willingness that that, that it creates in us to, to be used by God to reach out and to heal the hurting around us in the church. See, that is the the proof in the pudding. That is the evidence of the faith. And again, that's exactly what Paul said there in verse 15. He said, uh, when I heard of your... Where was I? when When I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love 
for all the saints. That is the evidence. That's the proof. And the reason is because what Jesus wants for us as we trust him is to teach us and enable us to love like he does, to love like the Father does. That's his goal for us because there's nothing better. That's what life is about. That's his delight and the Father's delight. And if we're not growing in our our ability to, to love, if we're not involved in a process where he's teaching and training us in that, that merely demonstrates that we aren't trusting him. We're not following him. Notice Paul says, your love for all the saints, not just the ones you get along with, not just your group of them, not just your church, but all saints, even the ones who hurt you, who've disappointed you, even the ones you disagree with, especially the ones you have to forgive, because that's exactly the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates, forgiveness. That's exactly the kind of love that he wants to show through us. It doesn't work to say, well, I love Jesus. It's just those Christians I can't stand. That's an understandable statement. (laughs) And I'm sure at times we've all been tempted to to, to make that. Especially considering how much we fail each other. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. So these are the marks, the true marks of a Christian. Trusting Jesus and loving his people. Paul says, as soon as I heard that you guys were doing this, as soon as I heard about these proofs in your life, I've not stopped praying for you. See, prayer is one of the the principal ways that we love other believers. Paul is practicing what he preaches. He's praying for them. And the first thing that Paul prays is there in verse 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him. See, this is the goal of a Christian, to know God, to really know him. Nothing less can ever ultimately be satisfying to a Christian. It's good to know about God. It's good to understand how, from Scripture how to, to lead a healthy life. And by reading and studying our Bibles, we can come to, to an understanding of these things. But that's not enough. That can never meet the deepest longings of our hearts. That, that can never give us life. We stop far short of the goal. Jesus said one time when he was confronting the Pharisees, he said, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you can possess eternal life. But these scriptures are telling about me, and you refuse to come to me to get that life. See, we're so often guilty of the same thing. We study our Bibles looking for principles for life. And there are principles in Scripture, valuable principles. There's nothing more valuable that you possess than this book and and the principles that are in there. But it's not enough. It doesn't go far enough. The whole purpose of the Bible is to lead you to turn to Jesus Christ, the giver of life, so that He can give you life. Notice that Paul doesn't assume that this will come naturally. It's something he has to pray for. It's something special that has to happen. 
Well, how does it happen? First, I think it's important that you understand what the Bible is, what scriptures are. The Bible is not the owner's manual for life. It's not the answer book. There are a lot of answers in there, and they are good answers. They are true. They are right. But what the Bible is, most basically, is a collection of stories. Stories of lives of normal people like you and me. Or stories of groups of people like, like churches in Ephesus or Corinth or other places. And in these stories, we see these people struggle. We see their confusion. We see their fear and their hurt. And, and, and we, we see their weaknesses. But also in these stories, we see how God treated them. How He forgave them. How He taught them and trained them. How He called them to Himself. How He showed them what He wanted for them and what He wanted from them. And as we watch how God loved those people, we see what God's like. We see who He is. We see what He likes. We see what delights Him and what He wants. And as we do this, we read these stories. The intent is that we will take that information and turn to Him and talk to Him about it and get to know Him personally. Let me illustrate this. Say you are standing next to your best friend and you overhear him or her talking to another friend. Tell them how much they hate pizza, how they're allergic to it. It makes them blow up like a balloon. Well, that night you had invited your friend over for dinner and you were planning on having pizza. You just learned something about your friend. You just listened in on a conversation. What are you going to do with that information? Just ignore it? Serve pizza and watch them blow up? (laughs) Or do you take that information and you talk to them about it? You find out what else they're allergic to and what they really like. And you change your menu to make it something that they will enjoy and benefit from. You respond to that information in your relationship. Or or let's say another friend comes up to you and tells you your best friend is really hurting over the death of their grandmother. What do you do with that information? Just ignore it? Go on? Or do you call them up? Start talking to them. Find out what they're feeling. Find out what they're thinking. How they're working through it. Use that information to really get to know them and to share their life with them. Their concerns, their feelings, their pain, their thoughts. Be a friend to them. See, what we have in Scripture is God's conversation. And in reading and studying Scripture, we're listening in on His conversations. And we're learning about Him. Who He is. What He likes. What His plans are. What what, what hurts Him. What His delights are. And the response is to turn to Him and talk to Him about this stuff. Say, is that really what you feel? Turn to Him and use that information to get to know Him. That's the only source of valid information or of of infallible information is the Scriptures. The descriptions of God are right. And if we want to relate to God as He is, not as we want Him to be or as we fantasize Him to be, we need the Word of God. But we then take what we learn there and we come to Him personally. And we apologize for for having been uh, ignoring it. And we ask Him to change us, to make us a better friend. Prayer is the necessary vehicle for getting to know God. Prayer is the necessary response to what we see in Scripture. I have no idea where I am now. (laughs) Got excited on that point. I like it. 
Okay, the problem, that's where we are, the problem. (laughs) The problem is that in ourselves, we lack the courage and we are too selfish and too self-centered to really be sensitive to God. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesians, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. See, we need the Holy Spirit to give us understanding, insight, wisdom, and revelation of who God is. The Holy Spirit opens our hearts to knowing God. He opens our eyes to seeing God. He gives us the courage to face how far we fall short of loving God. We need to consciously ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you. But it is a conscious, intentional choice to, to invite His ministry of opening our eyes and opening our hearts, asking Him to fill us and to show us. When we do that, <clears throat> when we allow Him to open our eyes, we see God. And what we see when we see God is that His delight is to love us. The thing He wants more than anything is for us to trust Him and to let Him protect us and to meet our needs, to teach us, to train us. Jesus prayed in John 17, This is eternal life, that they might know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. This was in Jesus' prayer for His disciples. You see, that's what He wanted for them. That's the thing He came to give. Eternal life, which is knowing Him and knowing the Father. And as Jesus gives them and us that relationship with Himself and with His Father, He's given us everything that we need. Everything that we need. Paul goes on to pray that these uh, Christians in Ephesus and we would begin to understand all that we have. Let me read from 18 on. I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him fills everything in every way. What what Paul is uh, praying for them is that God would open the uh, eyes of their heart so that they would understand the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance, and the power of God at work in their lives. These are the wealth of a Christian. We talked about the marks of a Christian, faith and love. We talked about the goal of a Christian, really knowing God. Well, these are the wealth of a Christian. Hope, riches, power. I want to touch on what each of these really is before we get back to our main theme. The uh, hope of our calling is something Paul talks about a lot. In Romans 5, he describes that hope as the the product of our response to suffering. You see, it is our hope, our confident expectation that the pain, the disappointment, the hurt, and the heartache that we go through is not for nothing. 
We realize that God is using these things to free us from the stuff that holds us back, that, that distracts us and keeps us from trusting Him and loving the people around us. It's our confident hope that as we walk through these struggles and trials, that the life of Christ in us is getting stronger and more obvious. As we walk through the difficulties of life, letting Him love us in the middle of them, our hope increases because we see Him working, changing us, making us more like Himself. And we know that ultimately that hope will be fulfilled when we are with Him for eternity, free from all the pain and the suffering, when we are entirely like Him because we'll see Him as He is. And the second thing, the uh, riches of our inheritance among the saints or in the saints talking about all the wealth, all the riches that are ours in Christ. It's talking about what we already have in Christ, that we are completely accepted in Christ. We are entirely forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future, in Christ. We are, 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 are totally loved in Christ. We have, we have authority over sin in our life in Christ. We have unlimited, unrestrained access to the presence of God, enjoying being with Him because of Christ and in Christ. And what Paul wants for them is for them to begin to grasp the incredible riches, wealth that is ours in Christ. And the final thing that he wanted them to and us to uh, realize is the nature, the power at work in our lives. He describes this as the power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted Him above every authority, every power. This is what what God did in Christ, what He did for Jesus, proved and demonstrated His power. God took the most hopeless situation, His Son, stone cold dead for three days. He raised Him back to life. Not only... Life. It wasn't just a weak, trembling life. It was the most powerful, awesome life in the universe above everything else that there is. God took the worst situation, the worst event in all of history, and made it into the most glorious event in all of history. In doing that, he demonstrated his ability. He proved himself He proved that he's able to do what he says. See, he had announced in the Old Testament and in Jesus' words that he was going to sacrifice his son for our sins and then he was going to raise him back to life that we might find life in him. If he hadn't done that, he would have proved himself impotent, unable to do what he says, not to be trusted to do the impossible things. But he did it. And he proved once and for all that he does what he says, no matter how unrealistic it may feel to us. And no matter how impossible our situation is, God will do what he says. And it can be counted on. He can and he will. He also proved proved that he's the rewarder of good. See, when Jesus was, was crucified, it looked like evil won. But it didn't. He raised Christ and exalted him above every power, authority, dominion, above every power there is. 
Evil doesn't win. And so often as we look around in our own lives and in our, our society, it looks like evil is winning. But it doesn't. God is a rewarder of good. He rewarded the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and has exalted Him to the supreme position. And He will reward us. When you suffer for doing what's right, for loving people, it will be rewarded. There is justice. There is right. And right wins. God also demonstrated the intent of His power in what He did in His Son. A while back, I was watching a movie on TV, and these terrorists took a, a whole airplane full of hostages. And to prove their power, they took one of the hostages, killed him, and threw him out onto the tarmac. Well, they proved their power. But they also proved their intent. Their intent was death, was evil, was destruction. God proved His power. But he also proved his intent. His intent is life, is healing, is good. God demonstrated the quality of that power in Jesus Christ. You know, we, as humans, we have a lot of power. We, we can blow up this whole planet with all of our nuclear weapons. We can move a mountain. We just blow it up. And that's a form of power. But we can't put life back into a body that's been dead three days. I could take a scalpel and poke out somebody's eye. Now, that's a form of power. But a surgeon can take that same scalpel and mend somebody's eye, repair it. The power of that surgeon is far greater than mine. The power of our God is so wonderfully subtle and skillful. He can create. He can give life. He can change personalities. He can take our hearts and put them back together. He can change lives. And there is no greater power. So what uh, Paul wants for us is the knowledge of our hope, of our riches, of the power of God at work in our lives. These are things we've talked about before. These are just lifeless facts on a page. We can all say, boy, that's really neat. Glad to hear that. But how do we move from these just being lifeless facts that we talk about to really um, grasping the glory of our hope, really thrilling at the incredible riches that are ours in Christ, learning to depend daily on that power, the greatest power in the universe that we have constant access to. How do we move to where it's part of us, where it's affecting us, where it moves us, it changes us? Well, what Paul said right at the beginning of this section was he was praying that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. When I was in seminary, there was a guy a year ahead of me. He's a brilliant guy. He had asked questions that I could barely conceive of. He knew the Bible like I only dreamed of. But when I talked to him about the scriptures, I always left feeling dumb, foolish. Now, granted, it's, it's, it's not too hard to make me feel dumb and foolish. But there was something going on here. This guy knew his Bible and he had a passion for knowledge. But he didn't have a passion for God or for loving. He uh, uh, went on, got his doctorate degree, became a professor in, in a major university in Texas. And there he left his wife and he left his faith. 
You see, he knew the Bible like probably better than, than, than just about anyone you'll ever meet. But it never made it from his head to his heart. And what Paul is wanting for us is for this stuff to make it from our head to our heart, that the eyes of our hearts be enlightened. Ray Steadman once said, You never have the whole person until the heart is moved, until truth makes it from the head to the heart. It's not enough to have your mind enlightened. It starts there, but it is never enough. The heart also must be enlightened. The will is never motivated until the emotions are engaged as well. And how is the heart engaged? It is not automatic. It must be asked for. If you want the scriptures, the word of God, the truth to come alive, you must ask for illumination. And if you want it to come alive for someone else, you must ask that they be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they can see God. You see, prayer really is the key. It's not enough just to hear or to read the scriptures. We've got to take what we hear when we read and turn to Jesus. Ask Him to open our hearts. Ask Him to open our eyes. Ask Him to change us, to engage us, to move us. Teaching of the Word is never enough. Teaching must be bathed in prayer. Last month, my mom was visiting her relatives in Oklahoma. I am am really an Okie by blood. She's talking to her cousin, a man in his 70s. He had grown up in the church. He had heard all of the profound truth about uh, our hope, about our riches in Christ, about the power of God. But he had never responded. It never made it from his head to his heart. Now in his 70s, this year, he gave his life to the Lord. And he said his major regret was that his mother was not here to see it. He um, accredited, he, he, he attributed his conversion to his mother, and especially to his mother's prayers that she prayed every day of his life. And he knew that it was those prayers, effective 20 years after her own death, that really turned him to turn to the one that she turned to daily. Her prayers led him to love the one that she loved so much. Teaching the word, reading the word, hearing the word is not enough. We've got to go to the giver of life so that we can come alive. Let me ask you all to do me a favor. Please, Never leave this room without taking what you hear and what you've read and turning to God and talking to Him about it. Asking Him, is that really what you think, God? Is that really what you feel? And looking at His, at his Word to know Him better, to understand Him better and taking that information and engaging with Him and asking Him to give you life. Asking Him to give you illumination and open your eyes to enlighten the eyes of your heart. That's what it's all about. And that's my prayer for each of you. Well, I want to take just 30 seconds to give you a chance to do what I'm asking you to do. But I'm asking you not just to do it today, but every week 
Every time you read your Bible and study your Bible, take a, a second or two to turn to God so you're not just learning about Him, but that information is being used to know Him, to relate to Him in your relationship with Him. So take a minute. Ask His Spirit to open your eyes so that you can see Him. Turn to Him with what we've talked about this morning. Talk to Him about it. Get to know Him. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, want to respond to you. We want to learn the riches that we have. How, uh, how wonderful, how glorious this hope is that you've given us as we go through hard things, knowing that you're working, knowing that you're good, that you're doing something worth doing, freeing us from the things that hold us back. We want to... Uh, uh, just explore every day the riches that are ours in you. To know all that you've already given us. Your love, your commitment, your, your acceptance, your forgiveness. Lord, we want to experience your power every day in our lives. But ultimately, Lord, what we really want, what you really want, is for us to know you. To know what you think, to know what you feel to care about that and to express ourselves what we think what we feel to you to be with you to know your love to let you love us because we trust you Lord that's the ultimate desire of our hearts I pray that you would just continue to pull us toward yourself use your word we know that your word is truth and that in it we see you accurately. We know we so often uh, come up with our own fantasy about who you are and what you want or what you're like. We want to abandon those, to learn from your word who you are. But Lord, we want to move beyond that to knowing you, to experiencing you, to letting you uh, just be our closest friend or just... Uh, Accomplish this in our lives, we pray by your Spirit. Amen.